0: The French History Podcast is brought to you by Evergreen Podcasts. History, pop culture, news, whatever it is you're looking for, Evergreen has the best of it. Today's special episode is an interview with Dr. Nicole Bauer. Bauer is an assistant professor of history at the University of Tulsa. She is a cultural historian of early modern and revolutionary France, interested in finding unexpected connections between politics, Gothic literature, religion, gender, and espionage in the history of secrecy. In this episode, we discuss her new book, Tracing the Shadow of Secrecy and Government Transparency in 18th Century France, which is all about secrets, from the late Ancien Régime into the French Revolution. What did people think of secrets? Is transparency in society a good thing? What secrets can we keep and why? These questions became incredibly important when the revolution aimed to remake society, though they remain important to this day. Thank you very much for being on the show, Dr. Nicole Bauer. Your book, Tracing the Shadow of Secrecy and Government Transparency in 18th Century France, is a truly fascinating work. Your book is all about secrets, particularly those held by the government. I think in our modern age, many people think that secrets are dangerous and those who work in secret are nefarious people. Yet in the late Ancien Regime, many people viewed secrecy as a natural and even good part of society. Can you explain secrecy's place in French culture before the mid-18th century?
1: Yes, happy to do so. And I'm so glad to be on the podcast, Gary. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, yes this is just such a fascinating rich multi-layered and also um, strange topic that I think I'm trying to say with the book that secrecy and our current contemporary attitudes towards secrecy have strange and deep roots it's sort of like this lotus blossom and if you know about the lotus this metaphor people often use it's it's a beautiful blossom above the surface of the water, but in order to thrive, it had these it has these deep roots into the muddy murky surface or place underneath the water. So yes, that's kind of the main crux and the overarching story of the book that attitudes towards secrecy, have changed dramatically since the Ancien Regime going up to the French Revolution and then after, and that these changes that happened over the course of the 18th century have really influenced um, and continue to influence and inform the often thorny debates we have now about secrecy and government transparency. And so, in the. Ancien Régime, the early 18th century, the 17th century, we can really take this back to, and I'll try to be brief, we can take this back to really the Renaissance and humanists, people like Machiavelli and those who read Machiavelli, like Cardinal Richelieu, they they really popularized this idea of, not that it was exactly new, but they were very keen on this idea of secrecy. And um, Richelieu especially has this idea of affair of state. And affair of state is maybe something the government does that is maybe murky in a moral way. It's morally dubious, but they keep it secret and they do it for the advantage of the state and the government's power or to consolidate power or in negotiations with other countries. And often it's kept secret. So the interesting thing is for thinkers like that in the Renaissance and the early modern, secrets are power secrets are currency. Everyone is expected to have secrets. Everyone is trying to find out everyone else's secrets. It's not a sense that, um, there's no sense that no one would have not have secrets. Uh, everyone does. And you could, some historians talk about an economy of secrets. So let's say if you're in the centers of power, like a royal court, you're playing this game where you're trying to hide your secrets. You're trying to find out the secrets of your enemies that would lead to those are their weaknesses. You are trying to gain advantage. They are trying to, meanwhile, find out your secrets. And on top of that, there's all these cultural imperatives that are very much tied to gender and masculinity about uh, a masculine, a successful man is has a facade. And that is totally legitimate, and that is totally um, valid, and the way you are a successful person at performing masculinity. And it's kind of related to this idea of spritzatura in the Italian Renaissance. You're nonchalant. You don't show your emotions. Your face is almost a mask. Often they compare the successful elite nobleman or gentleman to a clock where there's all this workings and the movement happening behind, but the dial or the face of the clock is smooth orderly composed. And so that is really the ideal for for women as well. The fascinating thing, if I could go on the little gender aside, is that's the ideal for men to be secretive, nonchalant, not showing your emotions, keeping your cards close to your chest, and then finding out the secrets of your enemies. And when you read Richelieu, for example, he'll say something like, women uh, should not normally, generally be in government because they cannot keep secrets. They're too talkative. They're too emotional. They uh, can't keep a hold on things. And so it's just fascinating how he will say there are some exceptions. There were some women we can see even our in our own time who were pretty adept at government, but in general, women cannot keep secrets. And then it's this hilarious, I think, about face when you get to the Enlightenment, especially after the high Enlightenment, say 1750s, 1760s, when people are starting to read Rousseau. Um, Marat was already writing in the 1770s. And when, and I can talk about this more later, when we get to these shifts away from secrecy being a way people express successful masculinity, they shift to, Secrets are actually weakness. They feminize secrets. And so they say, oh, no, actually, women um, are too secretive. They keep secrets. They're always pulling strings behind the scenes at court, like Madame de Pompadour. And then they say that to be a successful man, to truly be a man, you have to be a patriot, right? There's this new language of patriotism during the Enlightenment. And you have nothing to hide. You were upfront, you were authentic. And that's a lot, a lot of that's also coming from Rousseau's novels. So there's that gender aspect, which I think is fascinating. And the other aspect is honor. So I'm a cultural historian. I love looking at shifting cultural shifts and shifting attitudes towards concepts like religion, honor, gender. And honor was, of course, essential to every French person's and every social class um, reputation or what they call credit or their social standing. And secrecy was a way to preserve honor. If, say, someone in your family did something a little shameful, it was actually best for the family honor to sweep it under the rug because you don't want it to get out. Honor, of course, is very much tied to what people in your community say about you. There's no sense of you being honorable just alone in a vacuum. Um, today, you might think of honor as integrity. Back then, honor is much more about how people in your community see you, what they say about you, and you certainly don't wanna put your dirty laundry out in public. And secrecy is an essential aspect to maintaining family honor. And again, there are changes towards attitudes and on, towards honor in the enlightenment. So I'll pause there, um, but those are those two really fascinating aspects, gender and honor, I would say for sure, are really important in the old regime.
0: No matter what women were doing, they were doing it wrong, whether it's it's keeping too many secrets (laughs) or not keeping them. So you did start to touch on the next question, which is many people have probably heard about the infamous lettre de cachet, letters signed by the king, which often led to individuals being imprisoned or exiled it may come as a surprise to some that many French people appealed to the king to order Lettre de Cachet for their family members and loved ones. Why was that?
1: Yes, this is such an interesting, weird practice that again spanned social classes, genders, professions. And so just to define them really quick, many of your listeners probably know a little French. So when you hear it, it's, it, it sounds like it's hidden. And that's kind of interesting that there's sort of this um, homonym there for cachet, right? Hidden. But actually it's referring to cachet ending in the letter T, meaning seal, L- like not, not like the seal at the performing seal, like art, art, not with a seal on a, with a red ball and it's right. nose, the seal, like a stamp or a wax seal. That's, that's what cachet is in French. And so it was, it meant that it was secretive because it was sealed. No one except for the certain figures. And in theory, the king, the minister of the government who signed it, and then maybe the governor of the Bastille who would let them in. um, Those are the only ones who are allowed to read it. And so it was this practice where, a family member, usually someone in a position of authority, but um, not always a father, could be a mother, could be a husband, could be a wife, could be um, the employer of servants, request this usually from the police. So in theory, it's only the king who can sign a lettre de cachet and issue this order, and then it would have to be countersigned by a minister in the government. Um, but what happens in, in actual everyday practice in the 18th century and this is a this is imp- increasing in practice as the government is becoming more and more centralized bureaucratized so late 17th century um, really increasing through the 18th century and they would request usually from the Paris police but also other police in the cities of France um, for this family member to be, put away secretly, quietly, usually under the cover of darkness, and some examples I found were just, uh, just unbelievable, wild stories. I, I, you know, I spent hours in the archives pouring over these police documents because the police kept good records quite often, and um, there was almost this wireistic uh, quality to the way the police were observing these people. So for example, um, it might be Uh, An aristocratic family and their son was engaging in what they called debauchery and gambling a lot and was having multiple sexual partners, often of the same gender, which was extremely shameful and, and embarrassing to the father of this, to the patriarch of this noble family. And this was in the city of Milan, which is a little bit outside Paris. And the his father was actually the governor of Milan, right? This aristocratic, um, important man in the community. And his son was off gallivanting with other young men. And so he requested the police to have his son arrested and sent to prison. And I followed this young man over several years. And his father kept requesting him to be sent to prison because the police found him, arrested him, put him in prison for several months or a year, and then they would let him go um, in the hopes that he was quote unquote corrected. And then he would go fall back into the same habits. And then his father would request him arrested again. And it was, it's actually quite sad because honor and reputation are so important to these people. There is not the sense that we would think of today with families of total unconditional love, not that families don't try to do things to their children these days, you have to earn a parent's love. You have to um, earn it by conforming to societal norms and behaving well. So, so what happened was um, this father requested for his son to be put away until the end of his days for all life. And um, we don't—I don't know exactly what happened to this son because some of the paper trail fell away. And um, instead, the son kept trying to escape. Sometimes he escaped. He was caught and put back in prison. Sometimes he was locked up in a monastery and then he escaped and then he'd be sent somewhere else like the hospital general, which was maybe, you know, a very um, kind of rough and tumble place to be where they put a lot of people they just considered fringe elements or riffraff. So the Bastille prison was actually a little bit of a nicer place to be than the hospital general. So, but other examples might be and this is where it's complicated. A wife could request a lettre de cachet against her husband if he was abusive, or maybe coming home drunk every time and really um, creating havoc for her or the children. She could go to the police and say, uh, "Can you please have him arrested?" Because if I go through the normal channels of the law courts, it will take too long, and this is really urgent. And so, it was actually seen as a way to streamline, protect people. But it was definitely secretive, it was definitely not respecting any sense of a person's um, autonomy or uh, human rights, a lot of parents using it against children, husbands would use it against their wives. Um, Like I said, employers could use it against their servants. Servants were not allowed to leave without permission, you weren't allowed to just quit, you needed permission. And so if servants would run away, they could enlist the police to bring them back. One woman had the police find a maid who ran away when she was pregnant and said, oh, I'm actually trying to help her. She's pregnant and running around on her own. Catch her and send her to the hospital and keep her there. And this is all against this young woman's will. Keep her there until she gives birth, because um, it's my responsibility as her person to keep her safe. and um, she doesn't even know what's good for her. So there's a lot of parochialism and there's a lot of this sense of, um, these people are members of the, of a patriarchal family. And so it's our job to look after them, even if uh, they don't know any better, even if it's against their will. And the King is seen as sort of this larger head of a larger patriarchal family who intervenes to help maintain order in, within these families But just to go a little further with this, um, this particularly expands as a practice in the late 17th century, 18th century, because you have a shift, an interesting shift of the government taking away some of the purview of the church. So it used to be the church would intervene more in situations like this and try to um, mitigate sin, immorality there's a shift in language in talking about subversive or um, let's say elements like this in society, people who are, are sexually devious say there's a shift in talking about it from sin to disorder because in the 17th century and early enlightenment, there's sort of this emphasis on bringing order and the state brings order. The patriarchal head of the family brings order. The King brings order to the kingdom. And so um, on top of this cultural emphasis on order, there's a growth in the bureaucratic arms of the government. And so the Paris police are growing and becoming more sophisticated. And there's the official head of police um, set up under Louis the 14th in the 1660s. And it's considered the first modern police force. So it's interesting, it's kind of this old world, old ancien regime idea of collective honor, collective shame, and the patriarchal head of the family maintains order, but there's these newish trends in ideas of the state where you have a more modern, bureaucratized state intervening into your personal life more than it used to. And this also ties in with the rise of surveillance. The police are surveilling people more because what they would do when you request a letter de cachet, say you request one for your um, cook who stole some stuff and ran away with the housemaid. The police would investigate. They wouldn't just take your word for it. They would talk to your neighbors discreetly. They would probably talk to the parish priest and say, Is this right? Is this cook disreputable? Is this cook like a total reprobate? Should we, should we um, is this person's uh, complaint legitimate? And then they would coordinate with the family to have this person arrested, usually at night, and they would grab them and send them to prison. And often they would not tell the person who is arrested why. So, the victim would have no idea often why they've been arrested. No one would answer their questions. We have their letters written from prison. And the police would write notes in the margins and say, do not reply. Um, They would not send letters often for the people in prison. They would not answer their questions. They would not reply to their letters. Mm -hmm. It was almost like this in a modern sort of dictatorship when people get disappeared. That's kind of what they do to you. You get disappeared. And then, say, there are family members who didn't know about the arrest and want to know what happened to you, or they just want the police to confirm an arrest, often they would not answer their questions. So there's this whole veil of secrecy around it that the police and the government use that they believe maintains control, helps them keep, um, keep a tight grip on things, but also that could enhance or create a sense of terror and fear and uncertainty, because if you don't even know why you've been arrested or your family members and friends don't even know if you've been arrested, you just disappeared, that uncertainty and fear, um, at least in theory, for them, create gives them an advantage. And they can use that, say, um, to have the upper hand in interrogations or to scare people into cooperating. So most people who were arrested by lettre de cachet were family members or servants or spouses. Some, though, you do have a few cases, high-profile but secretive, of spies, say, from foreign countries that they caught and they don't want anyone to know. They certainly don't want that other country maybe to know that they caught this spy and they would interrogate them. Um, So, And then the other category might be very high-ranking courtiers or aristocrats. And the king, for whatever reason, is displeased with you and um, would send or maybe you did badly in battle. And actually that you were expected to present yourself at prison. The king would send you a letter to cachet and say, I'm very displeased with your behavior. You know, go present yourself at prison tomorrow. And you were expected to obey. And generally they did. They they um, Julian Swan has a fantastic book about dishonor and among Aristocrats under Louis the Fourteenth and Louis the Fifteenth, they generally would. They would have. They would. They would be resigned. They would be angry, um, but they would obey, and they would. They would present themselves with a lettre de cachet at the prison door. And part of it was again the uncertainty. They wouldn't know how long the king planned to keep them there. It might just be a few days, but they don't know, so they have to go submit. And present themselves there and just um, be aware that it could be two days, it could be a year. So those are the different categories. And I can talk later about how attitudes shifted. But basically, contrary to what revolutionaries said, this was a practice solicited by and approved of by most people in French society, at least in the first half of the 18th century. So I'll pause there.
0: You argue that religion played a major role in the turn against secrecy, particularly mm. in the expulsion of the Jesuits from France in 1764. Can you explain who the Jesuits were, who the Jansenists were, and why these two Catholic groups turned on each other and how the Jansenists emerged victorious?
1: Yes, yes. So this is really really an interesting story and one that I feel like I was able to make an interesting contribution or maybe intervention into because for people who are not familiar with this conflict between the Jesuits and the Jansenists, the Jesuits are a, and still are, um, an order in the Catholic Church that began during the Counter-Reformation when the church was dealing with I'll make this brief. The church was dealing with uh, the Protestant Reformation, and so all these kind of new zealous types emerged to kind of revamp, help um, give the church new life, and there was a lot of this new energy going into the church in the 16th century. New orders like the Jesuits were founded that were both missionaries going abroad, spreading Christianity, and educators in Europe. And so the Jesuits pretty quickly and to this day are known as very skilled humanists. They are humanists. So they're very much influenced by Renaissance cultural shifts, um, educators. And so they very quickly founded many, many cutting edge high profile, um, colleges and colleges back then were kind of secondary schools for elites, but they also founded some, um, schools for lower level education. And they were often, they often did not charge for an education. So it was generally considered that elites, young men from well-off families would go. But sometimes there were uh, men from young, more lower class, working class families who would go to these schools. And you were, you would it would You would be considered this the best kind of education you could get before going on to university if you were to do that back then. So, for example, someone like uh, Descartes and uh, Voltaire went to Jesuit colleges before the Jesuits were expelled in the 1760s. Um, so this is the kind of reputation they had for teaching you the classics, but also often cutting edge stuff like mathematics, sciences. They were known for being very curious and advanced in studying languages, the physical sciences, astronomy, um, and mathematics, like I said. Um, and they probably developed maybe the first time zone map because the Jesuits were basically a NGO, one of the first. They had a global network. They had missionaries all over the world, and they communicated with each other. And so they probably arguably developed one of the first time zone maps because they were starting to experiment with that. So they're just a fascinating uh, order, that is really zealous, but also really curious and tied into the scientific revolution and innovations in education. Also, we all owe it to the Jesuits because they probably invented the summer break. They, when they were setting up their schools, they decided, you know, we're not going to have classes during summer because it's too hot. You know, this is in Southern Italy, places like that. So anyway, um, there's that, but they also developed this reputation for being very meddlesome, into intrigue, secretive. And this is because they had kind of this top-down method with um, influencing and spreading Christianity. of Try to get in good with elites. And then if you can convert elites or have elites be very... um, pious and devout, this will trickle down to the rest of society. So they were very good at becoming confessors to prominent queens, kings, duchesses, people at um, the royal courts. They also used this method overseas. So when they're in places like China, they would try to get in good with um, high-ranking court officials, the emperor and others to hopefully convert people at the top, so to speak, to Christianity and then it would trickle down. This did not happen in China, but the Chinese were very interested in the Jesuits science and they really took to advances in timekeeping with the Je- which the Jesuits were also on board with. So they're just really interesting people into technical advances and advancements and philosophy and science, all this stuff. But they developed this reputation for being secretive and trying to pull the strings, again, behind the scenes, similar to women. A lot of the accusations you get during the Enlightenment are similar to women at court. Um, They're secretly pulling the strings. They're trying to control things. But added to that, the Jesuits often were accused of a kind of global conspiratorial to them. There's something about them and their global network, which they did have because of their missionaries. Because of their connections, they are uh, plotting to have a worldwide conspiracy and control of the governments behind the scenes, similar to a lot of conspiracy theories today. And the fascinating thing is... And the scary thing is that they were often compared to Jewish people. And the the theories, the conspiracy theories about the Jesuits were very similar to those even now anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, that they have a worldwide network. They are secretly pulling the strings behind the scenes. And they are really foreign. Even if they are in our country, they're not really of our country. They don't really belong. They're actually foreign. So with Jewish people, you know, they would say, "Oh, yes, they're they're living in France, but they're really not French." Um, they use the same arguments with the Jesuits. They say, "Well, maybe they're French. They grew up here, but they're loyal to Rome and they are ultramontane, meaning loyal to the Pope above all and exclusively. They're not loyal to France, right? They're not loyal to any local government, and they're trying to infiltrate." government to control things for Rome and create this worldwide conspiracy to um, rule rule the world, basically. And never mind that the majority of the Jesuits were in the provinces running these small schools, like I said, that is the bulk of their work in Europe, but they were famous and known for being at courts and being confessors and trying to control things behind the scenes. So that's the Jesuits in a nutshell. The Jansenists are a group that develops um, out of some mystics and others in the 17th century. And there, I mean, without going too much into theological debates around this. So Pascal in the 17th century was a very famous Jansenist and he had a few mystical experiences and got really on board with this idea. Jansenists are very much influenced by an Augustinian worldview So their idea is that um, they're kind of like Calvinists, but they're still Catholic, and they um, believe in saints and miracles, kind of. So what that means is they kind of have a sense of human nature as being um, intrinsically wicked, and you are prone to sin all the time, um, and it's really only by grace that you could be saved and go to heaven. It's not really much you can do, you pathetic human, because you're so sinful, you're so gross. Um, it's really only God's grace. So pray to God, hopefully you might be saved through your belief, right? So there's more of a sense of grace or um, the wickedness of human nature, and you can do very little. Whereas Catholics traditionally emphasize good works and free will, right? That's like the big Catholic-Protestant divide in the Reformation. So the Jesuits always were much more about free will, good works. There are things you can do to get into heaven. Jesuits are much more sanguine about human nature and um, our prospects for getting into heaven and that kind of thing. And the Jansenists, because they're much more purist, purist and they're austere and they believe in the power of grace really strongly they didn't like how they thought the Jesuits were being too lax, especially with elites. And they were saying, like, "Oh yeah, you can still eat lots of meat and you know go dancing and you know just confess your sins before you die; you'll probably be okay." And they they didn't like that. They liked things. They liked things to be much more austere and strict. Um, and they believe that human nature is pretty corrupt. But what this leads to is they also have a very manichean worldview. They believe in. Um, things are pretty black and white for them. There's good and evil, and uh, they use this interesting biblical language of light and dark, and that um, God's light will will shed, will disperse the shadows and shine light into all the dark places. And um, this leads to a sort of suspicion of secrecy and darkness and things hidden. And the Jansenists, because of their views seen as borderline heretical, and in fact, the pope, one of the popes issued a papal bull against them, and they're still trying to uh, maintain their beliefs and survive in France. The French state started persecuting some of them and sending them to prisons. So they were experiencing uh, some persecution in the early 18th century. They blamed the Jesuits. They thought Jesuits at um, high, high-ranking positions at court were working against them, convincing the king to persecute them. So that's part of the problem there. Uh, and maybe we don't know for sure. Maybe there were some Jesuits who were saying that um, their their rivalry had begun in the 17th century when Pascal had written letters, um, these letters that were public letters, attacking the Jesuits as too lax and too um, wishy-washy and tying themselves into knots to get people easy ways to get into heaven kind of thing. So they're, they're very suspicious of secrecy. They um, are kind of dealing with some persecution. They, they think the Jesuits are behind the persecution. They also think the Jesuits are secretive, plotting in the darkness. They start to align or connect Jesuit secrecy with foreignness. They're foreign because they're more loyal to Rome than they are to France. There's this concept of Gallicanism, which tries to promote the French church while still being Catholic, but independent from Rome. They're much more Gallican in that sense, and the Jesuits less so. And then you get prominent Jansenists among some of them in the nobility and some of them in the parlement or the law courts. And they're more and more vocal about this new language of patriotism, which really gets steam in the 1750s, 1760s. This is this new language that's very exciting to um, the French public and intellectuals. And so they start to latch onto that. They say, we're all about patriotism. We're all about the French nation. We, um, We are actually representing the nation almost in the sense that the British parliament does, even though this is not the same, this is not equivalent, but they're, they are—they would say, oh, the parliament are protecting the nation's rights and we should have a constitution, even though we don't, but we should have one and, and we maybe represent the nation. So there's more of this language. And then meanwhile, they're still hating on the Jesuits. And so they start to connect secrecy with foreignness. And actually a lot of their... Attacks on the Jesuits, um, they mention Jewish people in the same attacks. They say, oh, they're just like Jews. They, so they will say this explicitly. Um, they are secretive. They have these networks. They do not belong. They're sinful. They're uh, wicked. They're doomed to wander. There was this. There's this old anti-Semitic legend of the wandering Jew, and they said that about Jesuits too. Oh, they're doomed to wander because they don't belong anywhere, and they're actually corrupt. They're very corrupt, and they're hiding their international networks. So, where I think I am intervening in this is the Jansenists are often heralded as kind of early precursors of revolutionary or democratic or patriotic. Um, Rhetoric or ideology because they were talking about this idea of the nation and patriotism and they were kind of sometimes pushing back against government overreach, you could say. But their attacks and very successful attacks against the Jesuits are really uh, there's some there's some shady, (laughs) shady aspects to this where they're saying um, secrecy equals foreignness. And they're developing this proto-nationalism, I would say. This is the beginnings of nationalism, where there's an other. Nationalists always need an other. And they often have an internal or external other. This is just how we see this play out in the modern in the modern world again and again. Um, and so they're developing this rhetoric, which came out of religion. It came out of their interpretations of scripture. But it also has to do with their rivalry with the Jesuits. And so what happens is they're also really good at marshalling public opinion to uh, all kinds of, I mean, we might call it a smear campaign, but all kinds of pamphlets, newspapers, some of them illegal, but they publish them really successfully and abroad Um, talking about how corrupt and terrible the Jesuits are. And some of it just really outlandish claims uh, that the Jesuits are doing terrible things. Again, very similar to claims about Jewish people doing things to um, babies or hurting people or um, forcing people to convert or uh, secretly controlling things at court. And then the Jesuits, on the other hand, were not very good at marshalling public opinion Public opinion was such an important force and was growing as um, as something people were talking about that was powerful and that was an alternative to state power in the Enlightenment. And the Jesuits were still re- relying in traditional ways on patrons and powerful people at court, whereas the Jansenists, you could say, were much more Enlightenment-era savvy in using public opinion to get what they want, to reach out to the public, to convince people there and so there were many influential figures in the Parlement, magistrates and lawyers who were good at, you know, shifting public opinion away from the Jesuits. And they used a court case, a complicated court case having to do with some property the Jesuits were shipping from areas in the Caribbean, to basically argue that they were corrupt, um, contrary to French character and the French nation. They're using this proto-nationalist discourse to say that they actually don't belong. They're not loyal. They're not patriotic. And the Jesuits are basically expelled. And a lot of their schools were closed down. This is kind of the the unfortunate part, especially, is that a lot of their schools closed and um, they were providing education to a lot of people in the countryside. Some of those schools reopened under um, other, other religious orders. But there was some, there was a lot lost there, I think, and um, a lot of probably innocent people suffered too when they were forced to leave, and they really don't come back until after Napoleon. Um, so the Jesuits are fascinating. They they were kind of considered counter revolutionary, though I think that's an exaggeration during the Enlightenment. In the 19th century, they tend to be pretty far to the right, supporting you know the monarchical regimes. But, you know, in the 20th century, they became very radical and very far to the left. It's very interesting. They now have a reputation for being um, very far on the left in the Catholic Church. And, of course, the current pope is a Jesuit, and he um, has angered a lot of conservatives because of his stuff about environmental law or saying things about being tolerant towards gay people. Um, So the Jesuits, I think, are just fascinating. I could talk about them all day. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: So, on that note, so we've talked about this religious element. Now there's another very. Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never frozen, chef crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouth-watering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu, and you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash FrenchHistory50 and use the code FrenchHistory50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. Uh, looming and exciting part of your book, which I could not wait to discuss, which is the infamous fortress prison, the Bastille. At the height of operations, it was a particularly ominous and dreadful place. Can you detail how the Bastille became the Bastille of (laughs) horror and legend?
1: Yeah, so creepy, so dark right? And we we love it though. I mean, think of how many times it's been described in French literature and novels of this this creepy, dark, mysterious place. And um, every Gothic novel you can think of often has uh, a place reminiscent of this. And yeah, I love it too. It's just so creepy and dark. I remember the first time I visited Paris when I was younger, probably I was a teenager, I was so disappointed to learn that it wasn't there anymore. I wanted to go tour it, just like the people I talk about in my books these the, my book these emotional tourists who would try to sneak in during demolition to experience the creepiness of the prison and um it's almost like ghost tourism today, which by the way is a booming industry. It's just fascinating, where people will pay extra money to stay in supposedly haunted areas and haunted hotel rooms. they would do this um. During the revolution, people would sneak in, pay the workers to spend the night in maybe a cell that doesn't even have a roof anymore so they could get a, get the creepy vibes and uh, experience what it was like to be there. It's just a fascinating idea in and of itself. Why would someone pay money to get spooked? But people love it. So so yeah, your question was about how it got this history, right? How it got to be known this way. How it way.
0: became the vastity of legend. Yes. Yes,
1: yes. So originally it was built in, i want to say the 14th century as a fortress and um it really becomes the Bastille legend i would say under again under richelieu in the 17th century um when more and more he and then louis the 13th were using it to sort of um mostly to put a, a, to incarcerate um Feisty aristocrats so they could cool their heels because this was a time when aristocrats were still powerful, right? There's this narrative of Richelieu centralizing the monarchy, trying to tame um, powerful provincial centers, trying to um, bring more power to the monarchy. And if that meant uh, imprisoning or attacking powerful aristocrats, he would do that, right? So um, initially it was a place for that. And so you didn't have as many, say, peasants or art, people from the artisanal classes going there. If they were they were sent somewhere, it's usually the hospital general, um, which was kind of a madhouse slash hospital slash place. You just put people who are kind of fringe people or homeless people. They would force, they would collect them and put them there. So um, then you get the creation of the modern police force in the 1660s. And more and more, Louis XIV was also using it in that way to put away feisty aristocrats, um, but also spies and anyone else that the government maybe thought was troublesome or knew knew dangerous secrets. This is the time period also of the man in the iron mask. And to this day, nobody knows who he is and many great historians and much ink has been spilled trying to figure out who he is. Um, Paul Sanino wrote a really great book, and he's he might be right because he's probably an expert on diplomatic history in the 17th century. So, um, but there were a few creepy, murky things that happened during the reign of Louis XIV. One of them is the men of the Iron Mask. There seems to be evidence that there was a masked prisoner first sent to prisons in the provinces far, far away, like um, Pignerol and other places like this at the borders down in the south. And then he was sent to the Bastille prison and nobody knows who he was, but there seemed to be this prisoner that you weren't. no one was allowed to see, no one was allowed to talk to, and that maybe was wearing a mask. So that was weird and creepy and people got really curious. Part of it also is there's... Um, The secrecy spurs curiosity. People are just um, dying to know what is it you're hiding? Why is he wearing a mask? Why can't anyone talk about him? Why can't anyone see him? What's the deal, right? So of course, when there's secrecy like this, it just spurs all these rumors and stories. Maybe he's a twin brother. Maybe he's someone related to the royal family. So there's that story and those rumors start percolating in the reign of Louis XIV, and then they get picked up later by people like Voltaire during the Enlightenment. And then there's also creepy weird things like the affair of the poisons, which happened in the reign of Louis XIV. And just really quick, this was a very crazy, bizarre um, scandal where it seems like a lot of high-profile people at the court were involved in Satanism, magic, the occult, And all kinds of weird, creepy stuff, like um, a Black Mass, which is a satanic ritual that's kind of an inversion of a Catholic Mass, where you sacrifice an infant to the devil and hopefully will get riches and power in return. And supposedly a lot of people were involved with this, plus poisoning plus talking to fortune tellers to get wealth and power in in unsavory ways and then it got out that maybe the king's mistress was involved. this was Madame de Montespan, probably the most powerful woman at the time that she was getting involved in um, satanic rituals and they started investigating it and found this wide network of fortune tellers, occultists, other magicians practicing all kinds of all kinds of weird, weird, creepy stuff, alchemy, this whole kind of underground network of magic, uh, and dealing in potions in Paris. And not only are these, all these kinds of people doing this, there's a lot of their clients are aristocrats at the court. And so they started to investigate, but then the more it got out that really high profile people, very prominent people were involved, the more the king tried to, uh, you know, sweep some of it under the rug. So basically his mistress did eventually lose her position, but nothing really bad happened to her. Whereas other people who maybe knew things about her or other high ranking people were sent to prison. And some of them were basically like Thrown in dungeons, and this isn't even an exaggeration. Like there, there were people who were kind of thrown in dungeons for the rest of their lives in dark, dank places, chained to walls, and forced not to, uh, forbidden to speak about what they knew for the rest of their lives. And so, a lot of this weird, creepy stuff happened So it's not an exaggeration to say that people were thrown into dungeons, chained to walls, and forced to be silent for the rest of their lives. So there's creepy, weird stuff like this happening. But what's also interesting is Louis XIV was very active in persecuting Protestants and Jansenists, who we know about now, and a lot of them were sent to the Bastille or other prisons. And then when Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes, which made Protestantism, again, illegal in France, a lot of Protestants fled to parts all over Europe and the Americas, some were also forced to row in the galleys, which were these ships, you know, kind of like Ben-Hur style, where you had to row. A lot of them were sent to those horrible places. And when they went abroad, they published... What is now known as the Black Legend or Dark Legend of the Bastille as this creepy, horrible place where people are tortured or locked up forever, and it's just terrible, and it's it's the worst thing that can ever happen to you. And they promoted this legend as a kind of anti-French, anti-Louis XIV propaganda, and it just spread and grew through the 18th century. Jansenists continued to be persecuted and. Like we said, they're very good at promoting themselves in publicity and saying, look how terrible this is. Look how persecuted we are. We're like martyrs for the faith. And they would publish this in France secretly and they would publish it abroad and they would say how terrible the prison was because by exaggerating the horrors of the prison that of course can help lend credit and sympathy to their plight and their cause by saying, yes, yeah, see see how much we've suffered in this horrible prison and there's all this torture going on and there's all these secret executions and it's terrible. Now, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that a lot of torture was happening in the 18th century. The, the police did, could and did torture people in interrogations and they had this whole complicated system where they would show you the instruments first And then if you didn't talk, then they might like do a little bit like the thumbscrews or something. Um, it could be very, it could get very bad though. And, um, they did use torture until, you know, basically the revolution, the revolution abolished it. Um, but it doesn't seem like there was a lot of torture going on. It doesn't seem like there was a lot of, um, extrajudicial killing. It doesn't seem like, um, There were were even that many people imprisoned there after the reign of Louis XV, so in the 1760s, 70s. But nevertheless, because of this stuff, the real actual creepy stuff that happened under Louis XIV, then the spread of the legend by people who are very savvy publicity types sending it abroad and spreading that around France as well, this legend spread spreads and grows. Then Voltaire picks up the story of the Man in the Iron Mask and was really emphatic about it. You know, he he said, I'm a legit historian. I did my research. I talked to my sources. And I am convinced that the Man in the Iron Mask was the king's identical twin brother. And this is why. Um, so we don't have a lot of evidence for that. But Voltaire really thought that he had it right and published this. And that kind of gave new life into this story and it became mysterious and creepy again. And, whoo, how could the king do this? The king would lock up an innocent family member to maintain power, which, of course, doesn't make the monarchy look good. And so there are there are wider cultural changes happening where the monarchy is um, losing some of its sacredness, its legitimacy. And Roger Chartier wrote, writes about this really well in his um, Cultural Origins of the French Revolution Um, Great book, and so there's that. But also, 1760s, 1770s, you get the rise of gothic literature, and I thought um, this was so cool. This was a connection I did not see right away. Um, And some of this I owe to Colin Jones, you know, the revolutionary historian who pointed this out for sure. He says, you know, I see these creepy dark legends around the Bastille prison that you were talking about. They really are reminiscent of Gothic stories. And I said, yes, you're totally right. And I also love Gothic stories and I read a lot of them and I'm steeped in that whole stuff. And the Gothic genre was really exploding out of um, kind of sentimental literature at this time, talking about this literature is more based on emotions and affect it seems a little bit at odds with the enlightenment, um, values of transparency, light, reason, order. Um, And maybe, but maybe that's why the Gothic became so popular, stories of ghosts, haunted houses, witches, ruins, creepy dark places, mysteries, secrets, and almost always the secrets are horrible and sinister and bad. Coming to light, but through the course of the novel, These become really popular and become even more popular in the 1790s, the decade of the revolution. And I think that it's because, first off in the Gothic, the bad guys are almost always aristocrats or clerics, right? And these are... Coincidentally, right, not really, the bad guys in the French Revolution. You know, these are the people who are corrupt, who are after their own power, and the decaying castle or the ruins of a monastery are symbolic of their kind of corrupt decadence and um, evil nature that is falling apart in the face of the light of revolution and new order and democracy, right? So there's that, but there's also underneath the surface this appeal and fascination with creepy, dark secrets and um, what is, what is hidden, right? There's mysteries are fascinating and attractive. Mysterious people are, are often attractive. Like, what is it? What is about them? Why, what are they hiding? Right? So there's this cultural trend of valuing transparency and light. I think the Jansen has had a lot of influence in that, that translates into the political culture of the French Revolution. But underneath that, I think there's also this sort of um, reaction to that or response to, well, but isn't mystery still attractive? Isn't it still fascinating? And I think that's part of why people loved Gothic literature at this time. And it's also part of what makes them so attracted to this, what I call Bastille literature that is very creepy and dark and um the stories they would write about people in prisons and they were like in a dungeon surrounded by snakes and lizards and slimy slimy snails and rats and things like this. And they're chained to the wall. And uh, there's all these creepy, dark, elaborate torture machines and torture chambers. And they thought they were, you know, Indiana Jones style. There they they were trap doors and booby traps that the floor would give way and you would fall into spikes. There are really elaborate stories they're telling about the prison that are probably not true. So there's that. But then what happens in the revolution? They storm the Bastille prison, right? And they almost very immediately begin demolition. Louis XVI was planning to demolish the prison anyway, because it was literally falling apart. You know, one day the drawbridge fell off. So, but the revolutionaries took credit for demolishing it. Um, they hated it, they saw it as a symbol of despotism and um, terror and secrecy. And then they, but they did find some human remains. And when this happens they just go berserk they lose their minds um because there's been this legend that has been building for the past hundred years of creepy dark stuff happening behind the scenes the government abusing power torturing people maybe and then they find body parts they find human remains and bones and they just They just go nuts. And the French press, which now is proliferating because they've lifted censorship with the French Revolution, publishes all these stories about, oh, my gosh, we found body parts. Clearly, these people were killed in infamy and secrecy, and we're going to bring them to the light. They died in dishonor. We're going to bring them to honor the king or the government is so corrupt. I mean, it's it's the equivalent of when. You know, if you know anything about serial killers, I mean, I'm not an expert in serial killers, but when they looked under John Wayne Gacy's house and found all those bodies, this is what it's like for the French public. They're freaking out because it looks like, oh my gosh, we suspected the king was secretly killing people. And then we found these bodies. And so they stage a huge funeral for the bodies with 800 National Guard and Bastille workers are marching with the remains and they made a little mock Basile, Basile prison and they gave speeches and they buried these people and they made a monument for these people. Now, we don't know exactly who they were or why they died. Um, some people who, were, who died on, in the prison were buried on site if they were not Catholic because you had to be Catholic or Christian to be buried in um, sacred ground, you know, in a churchyard. So some people did die there and were buried in the, in the garden. So that might have been who they found, right? But it still looks bad. It looks bad that we demolished this prison that is a symbol of despotism and then found body parts. So that just amplifies even more and is also very useful to the revolutionaries as a sign that the government was corrupt, evil, wicked, despotic, and using secrecy to hide horrible abuses of power and it's it's really crazy and fun too because when I was reading about them discovering these human remains that also revives again the story of the man in the iron mask and they start um, speculating about that again and they loved to write about that you have many people ordinary people writing letters, to the editor of a magazine or a, news- a newspaper and saying, oh, you know what? Actually, I think he was this. And I heard from so-and-so that he was actually this person back in the 17th century. So they're they're titillated, they're fascinated, they're horrified, but they're also, I think, not wanting to admit how attracted they are to mystery. So there's all these layers of the dark legend, and then there's the rise of Gothic literature, and then there's the finding actual human remains in the prison after the storming of the Bastille in 1789. So that's kind of, um, I'll pause there, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. It's it's wild and crazy though,
0: right? (laughs) Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer. ba 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 Finally, I want to ask a question about the long lasting impact of secrecy and the state. This is actually a sub theme of the podcast. Dr. Jean Dijon did an episode on her book about how Paris police kidnapped innocent women and forced them into exile in Louisiana. I talked with Dr. Deborah Power about the development of domestic surveillance services in France between the Franco-Prussian War and World War I. My dissertation is on the emergence of mass surveillance of citizens in France and Britain during World War I and how that set the stage for the all-seeing intelligence services we have today like the NSA, GCHQ, and the various French domestic intelligence agencies? This might be a big question and somewhat speculative, but what do you think were the long-term impacts of the French Revolution on the country's use of secrecy?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And we are still, I think, watching that play out in real time. We, maybe maybe like the French Revolution itself, are we still grappling with it, figuring out what it means, right? Even though fure said the revolution is over, um, we are still figuring out how we feel about it, how we interpret it, right? So with, yes, that's so that's so interesting how it's kind of become a sub-theme of the podcast. Yeah, um, and I think it, it has to do also with how we as a society um, have not closed the books on this. Um, the jury is still out. We we don't know yet how we feel about this, and I think part of it is we don't even recognize some of our own contradictions around secrecy and transparency. For example, since the revolution and you know the rise of civil society and um, you know the I- ideology behind democracy, right, is that the government should be transparent, accountable, and um, we have to keep an eye on it, right? That what happens when we reverse the gaze? You know, we need to keep an eye on the government. Um, to what extent is the government allowed to keep an eye on you? This, um, we saw surveillance increase in the early modern and then modern period. And even though revolutionaries were very angry about the police and the government using surveillance against the public, um, they very quickly used surveillance as well. I mean, there are the famous or infamous surveillance committees during the French Revolution, during the terror, when they promoted and um, really encouraged citizens to denounce each other, to surveil each other, to report neighbors to the surveillance committee, and then they would be sent to the tribunals. The revolutionaries, um, while decrying the s- abuses of the police in the old regime, I think a lot, of, a lot of those same police just kind of shifted to the new revolutionary police and started working for the revolutionaries and using surveillance on anyone they suspected of counter-revolution. Right, and so you 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 know that you know during the terror, it's a very scary time if you are not overtly pro revolution or even pro Jacobin at that time. So, um, we, I think, in many countries around the world and in France, are still grappling with that history because we want to keep an eye on the government. We want the government to keep us safe, but to what extent does the government get to? intrude into your private life? What is the distinction between privacy and secrecy? Where do we draw the line if the government needs to keep an eye on people to watch out for any threats to national security, but at the same time, does not want to violate your privacy, right? So that's why there are a lot of laws in place that you know they they can't search your house without permission or without a search warrant and things like this. And yet we these debates are still raging, right? It's not it's not as if everyone's on the same page with this. And I think um there's a lot of ways to go in in a lot of directions to go in here. I think one I'd like to mention, you know, Snowden and Assange, And there was just this recent leak, this one, um, I think he was an an airman, right? He was in the Air Force, and he just leaked government um, documents related to the war in Ukraine here in the United States. Um, There was that that just happened. And sometimes these people are hailed as heroes. They're kind of Robin Hoods, if you will, of information. They steal from the rich and give to the poor. The the government's hoarding secrets from you and um, we're going to share it with you. But then others might say, oh, this is actually not so good because there are some secrets that maybe save lives or maybe um, we want to keep the secret so that rival countries don't find out what we're planning. Right. So there's there's that issue. There's that debate around how heroic is it really to steal secrets from the government? And share it with the public. Are there some secrets that actually should remain hidden? Are we really meant to disclose everything? Is, is everyone safer if we disclose everything? Um, the problem or the the issue today is that this is up for debate. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? We are debating this. in the In earlier centuries, it was just a given that the government kept secrets from you. You didn't even have a right to pry into them. Um, But now this is an ongoing lively debate. How much do we have a right to see into? um, Should everything really be disclosed? Maybe some secrets should be kept secret, at least for a while, right? Maybe some lives will be saved. Maybe that's better for security or a war if we're in a war situation or something like this, right? Although governments have often used emergency situations, as an excuse to kind of expand their powers, right? So there's that issue. There's the government should be transparent to us because that's a pretty core value now in a democratic society. Um, But how transparent should we be, right? Do we have a right to privacy? And where does that, where do we draw that line? How many secrets do we get to keep? At the same time with social media and the internet, Often people are willing to sacrifice a lot of their privacy for the sake of convenience, and you know, the stuff about your 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 information might be on the internet if you use your credit card to buy stuff, and you know, and there's a lot of places where you're vulnerable to identity theft, and we have often willingly given up some of that privacy or secrecy in exchange for convenience or fun or what have you, right? A lot of people will say they love they love to reference 1984, the novel. But they will often say, you know, big brother didn't have to force a screen on you. You you brought it in your home yourself. You know, maybe you have a, what's it, that Echo, you know, from Amazon where uh, it can talk to you and you, you tell it what to do and it can order new toilet paper for you if you're out of toilet paper. Or it could also call your mother-in-law if you want to call your mother-in-law. You just say, um, you know, or Siri on your iPhone, call so-and-so. And there was that recent mishap where someone someone's phone call was accidentally recorded and sent to a bunch of other strangers because there was a malfunction with the, with the echo or whatever it was. So part of it is that, you know, we are not 100% sure we have not yet grappled with the contradictions um, in our own society between privacy versus transparency. And on top of that is all this new technology, which seems to be threatening our privacy and rights to secrecy and to what extent are we willing to sacrifice or give up some of that privacy for convenience. So I'd say that's one big issue. Another one is, and this is just across, I think, a a lot of countries, is conspiracy theories. And this is kind of one of my other bailiwicks or favorite slash not so favorite topic, Um, is they're just so popular and have gained a lot of ground in recent years throughout, uh, again, throughout many countries, not just the US, but they're very prominent in Europe and elsewhere. Um, And a lot of this is spreading on misinformation. But what I would say is the French Revolution and the earlier decades in France can teach us a lot about the proliferation and really huge popularity and sway that conspiracy um, conspiracy theories hold over people. And it is not, it is not that these people are out of touch with reality. I mean, you might say they are, it's not that these people are just, you know, badly educated and not good at informing themselves. I mean, they're usually reading stuff all over the internet and having different, listening to different news sources, listening to their podcasts, right? Maybe so, you know, such podcasts, there's Joe Rogan says something on his podcast and everybody believes it. It's not that, it's not that they're not listening and watching and reading, They are. It's just that during the French Revolution, like now, there was this explosion of suddenly different news outlets. For them, it was newspapers. For us now, we have all kinds of sources. And suddenly, it was much easier to get into an echo chamber and listen to someone that could kind of hone and then promote and then reify your worldview your assumptions and your prejudices against other groups of people. And so that kind of is happening now where people can pick and choose their news outlet. It's not like everyone now, like in the 70s or 80s, watches the evening news. A lot of people have their own particular news outlet, sometimes extremist, that caters to their worldview and then reifies it right, and then creates an echo chamber. So that happened during the French Revolution where people started to read the newspaper that that catered to their specific target audience rather than a broad public and started to intensify or maybe radicalize their views. So that is happening now as well because we live like then in a very polarized political atmosphere. There are just periods in history where people get pretty politicized. It's almost like waves and crests and troughs, you know, yeah. with waves. Um, the French Revolution was a very polarizing, intensely politicized moment, of course, maybe un, unprecedented politicization happening, but never happened like that before the French Revolution, at least in the West. Um, this 1960s were a moment of intense politicization. And then now I think it's also happening. and It's very polarized. Not that we haven't had this kind of polarization before or that we haven't had this kind of intensity or level of crisis. I think we have. Um, but there's this multiple news outlets, like they had during the French Revolution. And the other kind of probably key component to why conspiracy theories, fears, intense nationalism is is rearing its head again, is a lot of people have this Manichaean worldview. And it's, like I said, tied to nationalism and seeing or needing an other, right? And often it's an external or internal other, but there has to be an other in nationalism because it's predicated on dichotomies. It often needs an other to define itself. And so we've got really rampant nationalism that's intensifying. And this Manichean worldview is sort of um, added to this sense of echo chamber and going to your one news outlet that's reifying your beliefs. And then that often or it can lead to a dehumanizing or a, seeing this this other as very one-dimensional and seeing things in black and white, good and evil, right? So if you see this other in that way, you're much, likely, much more likely to denigrate them and see them as maybe not even human or the enemy and an enemy that needs to be annihilated rather than negotiated with or um, engaged in debate. And unfortunately, I mean, we see that now and that's often the rhetoric you get in the French Revolution during the terror, they didn't have this sense of enemies, let's let's like bring them to the table and have a debate about what to do with the war or whatnot. It was their enemies, they don't belong to the nation, they need to be it's you know, cut cut out in some way or annihilated, right? There's this you see this language a lot in Danton and Saint Just and Robespierre and all this stuff. And I do think there's a lot to admire about those figures. It's just that that's kind of this Jacobin. Rhetoric, and I think we see that see that again. Um, and it's really, and I just wish more people knew this history because it's so uncanny. It's so similar to how it was in the revolutionary period. How we are getting more polarized. How we have this manichean worldview. How we have our echo chambers, and we're less likely to listen to people who deviate from from that, and to stereotype and have really intense prejudices. Against them, so those are two um, among many main uh, ways that that this history really informs what's happening right now. The the debate around government transparency and WikiLeaks and publicizing government documents, and the the current debates and all the swirling and all the wondering and all the hand wringing about conspiracy theories and why they're gaining such traction now. What is it about them, and what is it about us? And um, conspiracy theories were a big deal and really, really central to the French revolutionary political culture. And so I just think there's a lot there that can teach us about why we're so so into those now and what's going on.
0: The book is Tracing the Shadow of Secrecy and Government Transparency in 18th Century France. Thank you for being on the show, Dr. Bauer. Thank you,
1: this was a pleasure.
0: As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Hello, everyone.